Welcome to the Seneca Podcast, a weekly discussion of current affairs in China, coming to you from the pop-up Chinese studio here in Beijing. I'm Kaiser Guo, hosting All By My Lonesomes today, as Jeremy Goldcorn is out of town this week. I don't think today's topic will come as a surprise to anyone who's so much as glanced at a newspaper or gone online in the last 10 days or so. On the weekend of November 23rd, Beijing announced a new air defense identification zone, a boundary stretching over a wide swath of the East China Sea. With the declaration of that zone, China now requires any aircraft entering the ADIZ to identify itself and to give its flight path. China's ADIZ overlaps with Taiwan's slightly, but apparently nonetheless significantly with South Korea's and of course, quite substantially with Japan's. So not surprisingly, the move was highly controversial with Beijing saying this was a normal practice by any sovereign state. Uh, the fact, of course, that China's ADIZ includes the disputed Diaoyu Islands, also called the Senkaku Islands by Japanese, uh, was naturally at the heart of this issue. Japanese civilian airlines initially said that they would respect the ADIZ, but later and apparently at Tokyo's insistence said they would not comply with Beijing's new rules. Uh, days later, two American B-52 bombers flew over the zone uh, without giving identification. And then things got even more complicated when China said it would scramble, and in fact did scramble, uh, jet fighters in uh, response to unidentified incursions. Now, all of this was, was happening just days before U.S. President Joe Biden made a trip to East Asia, uh, where he stopped in Japan before coming to China. Here in Beijing, he spent about five and a half hours in conversation with China's President Xi Jinping, who appears not to have given ground on the issue of the ADIZ. Uh, Biden did not publicly ask Beijing to nullify or to retract uh, its announced ADIZ, and so uh, he, he's going to follow this visit. Uh, he's already already left uh, for South Korea before returning to the U.S. Joining me to talk about tensions over China's ADIZ, to tweeze apart the uh, motivations and to talk through the potential consequences, as well as to discuss Vice President Biden's visit, are two terrific Beijing-based journalists. I'm delighted to welcome back Pulitzer Prize winner Jane Perlez, chief diplomatic correspondent for The New York Times. Great to have you back, Jane. Kaiser, great to be here. Thank you. And uh, we're also joined for the first time on the show, and it's a long overdue appearance here, by Peter Ford, who's Bureau Chief of the Christian Science Monitor. Uh, great that you could finally make time to come join us on the show, Peter. Glad to be here. So now, do you come under the editorial lash of the evil Simon Montlake, formerly of Forbes? I do indeed, yes. He <coughs> for cruel my sins. Master? Cruel, cruel master. He's he? only just started. I think he's gathering his strength. Okay. Well, hello, Simon, and I'm going to take good care <coughs> of your e-bike. Don't worry. Uh, let's get started. Um, and let's start with some very basic stuff. And then who, whoever wants this one, I'm going to toss it up in the air. What is an air defense identification zone? Who creates them? Under what conditions are they recognized as legitimate? Peter's nodding his head. Go for it. Okay. Um, flyers call these an ADIZ uh, rather than what we all say, ADIZ or ADIZ. ADIZ is, I, as they, you know, a, normal exist, a normal phenomenon, are perfectly harmless and quite benign. They're just tools for uh, air defense controllers to sort out potential security threats from regular traffic. It's just a line drawn uh, beyond their coast, and they think to themselves, if anything comes across that line, then they need to keep more of a weather eye on it than they would if it was outside the line, but they don't normally take any action against it. Okay, um, and so who, who actually creates them? Are, are, is there some uh, body, uh, is there some inter multinational legal body that actually uh, says this is a legitimate ADIZ or ADIZ? Jane. Any country can create them, and that's, I think, the impetus behind China's creation. China looked around and said, well, 20 countries have ADIZs. Why don't we? 
And we're having problems with Japan over the East China Sea, so let's create an air defense identification zone, and that will give us more power and more clout with the Japanese. And if it uh, overlay, overlays the Japanese ADIZ, which it does, then that gives us even more clout, because then we'll have to force the Japanese to the negotiating table. Well, force the issue, right. Um, what are the terms that Beijing has actually announced? Are, are they requiring all civilian flights as well as military flights? to identify themselves? No, they're requiring not only all civilian, but all military flights as well with sovereign aircraft. And that's what one of the things that makes this different from others. I mean, the Chinese have said, everyone else does it, why can't we? Well, one of the reasons why this has, has created so much of a stink is because they're not just requiring civilian aircraft to identify themselves, but sovereign aircraft, and no other ADIZ requires that. In fact, the whole issue of, of civilian aircraft is a bit of a, of a red herring because all civilian aircraft flying, whether they're flying towards somebody's airspace or not, just flying through an ADIZ, they all announce where they're going because they file flight plans with the ICAO, the International Air Traffic Organization, and that shares them with all the air traffic controllers anywhere near their flight. So the fact that the Japanese are saying we are not going to say where our commercial airlines are going is actually unusual. Mm. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's sort of confrontational in, in, in your face. Well, it's, uh, yeah, and it's, I mean, it's somewhat foolish. I mean, the Americans have said, the FAA has said that, that American international carriers should, should obey the rules they obey everywhere else in the world, which is, which is take account of, of notification to airmen. And there's no reason why they shouldn't. And I think it's probably safer for the passengers if uh, the Chinese know that this is just simply a 747 on its way from, from Japan to Taipei. Right. Hypothetically, then, a uh, Chinese or a Russian reconnaissance aircraft flying very close to the, the California coast would not, if it were, weren't actually in the, the 20 mile zone, uh, the, the EEZ, it would not need then to identify itself? Is that correct? A military plane? Yeah, a military plane. No, as long as it's 12 miles out. Okay. 12 miles is the is territorial miles. limit. Okay. Okay. Yeah. okay. That's, that's interesting. I'm, I'm, I'm wondering whether that <laughs> would actually be the case. Uh, Anyway, let's, let's, let's talk a little bit about the history of ADIZs in the Western Pacific. So when and under what circumstances did Japan actually create its, uh, its own ADIZ? I don't know the circumstances, but I know they created their zone in 1969. And I understand that they expanded it in 2010. Now, whether they expanded it over a greater part of the Senkaku Islands, which are in dispute with China... I'm not sure. And there have been rumors going around that they extended it again in May. May of 2013. Right? May this year. But I haven't been able to confirm that. Have you, Peter? No, I don't know the exact details. Right. I, I've only, the only place that I've seen that was actually on Wikipedia. Uh, they, it, on Wikipedia, and I have no idea how, how reliable it is. Of course, it's, it's, it's hardly a source. But, but that has they, been they, a justification by the Chinese. They right. said the Japanese have had theirs since 1969, and moreover, they've expanded it two times. And so... Um, it's about time that we uh, did this. And apparently Xi Jinping in his talks with Biden this, uh, the last couple of days told Biden that it had been in the works for quite a while. Right. This wasn't something suddenly announced. Uh, and, and we'll talk about the timing of it because um, I think that's, that's it may or may not be significant. Um, but how, how do you assess Beijing's reactions to the American B-52 overflight, which I thought was... Uh, you know the first very interesting twist in this tale. I think there there were there was a lot of discussion uh, that suggested that this was all ultimately about playing to the base. That this was, this was uh, you know the announcement of the ADIZ was for for domestic consumption primarily, uh, and then the B fifty two overflight uh, and and China's lack of a, a significant response to it. Uh, 
really kind of undercut that that goal of sort of you know, playing up to the national. Well, I disagree a little bit. I don't. I know there's a big theory out there that this is to the domestic audience, mm-hmm. but I do think actually it's much more directed at Japan. I think it's quite a clever tactic by the Chinese. They're really frustrated with uh, the Japanese refusal to talk about the disputed islands and they see the air defense zone as a way to force the Japanese to the table. And in a way, I think the Chinese were quite smart to ignore the B-52. If they'd done something about it, then they would have been all hell to pay. Right. Yeah, actually, I, I tend to agree with you. I, I think that there's there wasn't a lot of trumpeting of it in the domestic media, for one thing. And, and if it were intended to be for domestic consumption, you'd think that they would have been very, very loud about it. But in fact, on that weekend, the 23rd and 24th, there was almost nothing in domestic Chinese news, right? No, I mean, I think when uh, when defense ministry spokespeople and, uh, and, and foreign ministry spokespeople say that this is not aimed or targeted at any particular country, I mean, that's, that's absolute nonsense, and I don't think anybody believes that. It's quite clearly targeted at Japan. But, I mean, one of the problems they've got with it is that in order to do what they wanted to do with it, they had to lay it over the Senkaku, the Diaoyu Islands. Right because that's the core of the whole problem. And yet that is what, in international customary law, makes it totally unacceptable, because it's the only aides in the world that lays over the sovereign territory of another country. Or disputed territory. Yeah. Disputed, but it's under Japanese control. Right. So that's what, I mean, that, that's at the heart of the problem, along with the fact that they try to apply it to, uh, to military airplanes as well as civilian. So um, to your point, you, you said that it, you, th- you thought it was pretty good chess. Uh, and I, I, I read an interesting editorial by Jamil Anderlini in the FT, uh, where he bas- basically makes that same claim. Let me read this and, and, and see what you, you both think of, of what Jamil had to say. He said, viewed from Beijing and the longer-term perspective of the country's strategic planners, the establishment of the new zone is a masterstroke that will change the facts on the ground, or in this case, the air, pretty quickly. For a start, the U.S. cannot keep flying bombers over the region and say they are part of, quote, long-planned exercises, unquote, as they claimed this week's flyovers were. Doing so would quickly lose impact as a statement of principle and evolve into needless provocation, especially in the eyes of the Chinese public who draw most of their opinions on such matters from tightly controlled state media. There are already signs that Beijing will portray its response to Japanese and American, quote, incursions, unquote, as proof it is exercising maximum restraint in the face of outrageous incitement. What do you think? Do you think that that gets it? Um, I agree partly. And I think probably the Chinese are playing a long game, um, rather like uh, Wei Qi, where you put down a marker and you stake out a position that you will later consolidate as and when you can. They're not at the moment in a position to to consolidate the position because they can't send up fighters all the time. Um, I'm not sure that I agree that the Americans can't keep sending airplanes into into the zone because they send them all the time, and they have done for years. EP-3 spy planes go up and down the coast day and night and uh, that's just routine, and there's nothing that the Chinese have done about them since 2001 and the EP3 crisis in Hainan. And I don't think there's anything they will do about them either, frankly. Jane, do you, do you agree with what Peter just said? I do. I think it's definitely a long, a long play by the Chinese, and I think the Americans can go in there any time they want, and I don't think the Chinese will do anything about it. The Chinese are interested in the Japanese. And I think also the... If a Japanese plane goes 
into the zone without notification, I would be very surprised if the Chinese actually shot it down or did something really punitive because they know that the costs would be so overwhelming. Right. They would cut the relationship with the United States right there dead. American Congress would be in total fury. There would be trade boycotts. It would, the cost would be so high that I just don't think that's on, on the plate. But I do think what's on the on in play is the Chinese effort to try and get the Japanese to negotiate over those islands because of the ADIZ. And so you, you, you see that that's the long game here is get, get, bringing them to the table, making them recognize that there is dispute. And then getting this. the islands and then having a bigger ownership in the East China Sea and then being able to project sea power and maritime power into the Western Pacific. I mean, that's, that's the obvious goal. This is just a very small play in a, in a much bigger drama, if you like. So, so, Jane, in a piece that was bylined by Mark Landler, um, to which you actually contributed some reporting, uh, you quoted Jeff Bader. I don't know if you spoke to him or if Mark did, um, on the intent of uh, Xi Jinping's relatively strong stance uh, to Joe Biden, uh, talking about the ADIC. Uh, and I'm just going to read that, that quote from Jeff Bader here. He, he says, a reason for Xi's tone is a desire to make U.S. allies, especially Japan, uneasy about U.S. support by suggesting subliminally that the U.S.-China relationship is more important than other relationships, and the U.S. is keeping it sound despite China-Japan relations, said Jeffrey A. Bader. I thought that was a very smart uh, comment, on, yes, and uh, Bader knows uh, the region very well. Uh, in fact, some people think he might be the next ambassador here, if, or some people think if he wanted to be the next ambassador, he could be. But I think there's a lot in what he says, that she, uh, at this moment, is is upplaying the American relationship to make the Japanese try and quake in their boots. I don't know if the Japanese will, but it doesn't, must not thrill the Japanese because the Japanese are the closest ally of the United States in the region, they're a treaty ally. And if something happened over the Senkakus, then the United States would be obliged to come to Japan's help. Yes, and it puts it puts Washington in a very awkward position because on the one hand they have a treaty alliance with Japan, on the other they have what they've been saying for years is the most single single most important relationship in the world, their relationship with China, and they have to to play between those two. So, do you think that this this moment was chosen wisely as a bump to try to drive this wedge, or do you think that that it was a miscalculation? Too early to say. <laughs> well, I don't I think... think. Look, you know what? In the in the long run, I don't think this thing is that important. I mean, obviously, it's important if there's a collision over the islands and somebody shoots down a plane, and then there's a huge, huge drama. But I think that the story here is basically the ineptness of the Chinese in playing a big power. They are now a big power on the world stage, and they abruptly announce a new air defense zone and say they may send fighter jets against somebody else's planes as if, you know, this is to be taken normally. If they had, an, if they had consulted with surrounding countries and said to people, the United States, Japan, South Korea, we're going to do this and what do you think, as most countries would do, there wouldn't be such a fuss. It was actually the abruptness of the way they did it and the threats that went with it that caused the stir. Mm-hmm. Yes, I mean, I think it's 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 typical of the opaqueness of Chinese decision making and and Chinese decision taking, and the way they they conduct their international relations. And it's uh, the presentation is, uh, is is a big part of the problem. Do you think that the timing of it happening just uh, 
days, really, uh, uh, less than uh, half a half a month after the conclusion of the third plenary session, uh, was significant at all. Do you think this is part of um, Xi Jinping's uh, consolidation of, of of power? Do you see that as an element in this, Peter? Uh, I suppose you could make an argument that um, that people in the security forces of PLA and security forces are possibly feeling threatened by the idea of a of a national security council kind of of organization which Xi Jinping will be in charge of, and they might see that as a possible way that some of their influence would be taken away. But I think what happened, I mean, well, who the hell knows what happens in Zhongnan Hai, but uh, I think there's a plausible argument made that, that, that this is a PLA, obviously a PLA initiative, that they briefed the leadership and they pitched it in as positive a way as they possibly could. They, of course, talked to the party, not to the state. Mm -hmm. um, and Xi Jinping and the Central Military Commission liked the idea but didn't consult very widely uh, amongst other agencies of government. I mean, I think the foreign ministry might have raised a few red lights on this one if they'd uh, been given the say or had much influence in this kind of a decision. Well, they had their talking points in place, though, by the time this broke. I mean, they, they, they clearly had been briefed. Well, they were briefed better than they were when... Um, when the PLA launched its anti-satellite <laughs> missile a few months, a few years ago, and um, and the poor foreign ministry spokesman who was at the the, uh, the Christmas party for the press was asked about this and clearly did not have a clue what was going on and had to disappear into a huddle. Well, I, but, uh, I know how that can be. <laughs> yeah, I really do. I, 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 I sympathize entirely. So, Jane, Peter, uh, whoever wants this up, what's the climb down position here? I mean, there's there's got to be some way to you know for them to elegantly face, say, for both you know, Xi Jinping and for Shinzo Abe to be able to, to, to climb down from this? Well, I think uh, the Americans, in the person of Biden, have, have tried to offer one and said, you know, please get a, um, a mechanism in, in play about how this rules of engagement mm -hmm. and how this is going to play between China and Japan. And the Chinese are now saying at foreign ministry briefings, um, we're happy to talk, but Japanese don't want to talk. See, but that—that's—that's. That, that's, I mean, I, I think that if you if you if if, the, if the, the chess game is being played according to the logic you've suggested, both of you have suggested, then just this is a win for China. Uh, to suggest that there needs to be now a mechanism to handle this, it's a, a kind of de facto recognition. The facts on the ground have changed already. I think it will be a win for China. Okay. I think I think in the end, uh, Abe is going to have little choice but to. Uh, go along with some rules of engagement, but maybe it'll be done quietly. I think. I mean, China's China's obviously way of climbing down quietly is just not to really enforce this zone, not to scramble jets every time anyone comes anywhere near it, and to uh, and to quietly let all the rhetoric die down, let all the brouhaha die down, and then decide on its next play in a few you know a few months or next year or or whenever it might be. But uh, certainly the Japanese don't sound in the mood at the moment to, to be talking about rules of engagement because they think that even by talking about rules of engagement, then they will ex be accepting the, 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 the aid is and the fact that it lies over the Senkaku Diyayu. So it'll be hard for the Japanese. I mean, the same, they're faced with the same dilemma as they're faced with at the moment. They can't even and won't even acknowledge there is a dispute over the islands, which, of course, on the face of it is, is, is absurd because as China is, is claiming it. And just by claiming it, China has created the dispute. What um, I, I, from from here from here, sitting in Beijing, we're we're constantly thinking about domestic considerations. So we're, we're always, uh, you know, worried about how this is going to play on on Weibo. Uh, what I know less, much less about is is the crowd that Shinzo Abe faces at home in Japan. Maybe uh, 
I know that both of you know, know a little bit about what's happening there. Uh, perhaps you can en enlighten our listeners. Um, tell us what, I mean, we talk about the Japanese right all the time. How meaningful are they? Uh, anyone want to? Well, I think the Japanese right is a significant political force, and, and, and Shinzo Abe himself has a personal family history that connects him to uh, some pretty grim historical facts. Um, and he has not, to be honest, uh, done as much as the rest of the world would like him to do to, to separate himself from that, to make it quite clear that he is not sympathetic with the Japanese right. I mean, this is one of the, the problems that Japan has uh, internationally and with China, is that because Abe has not clearly distinguished himself from this history and occasionally seems to lean towards revisionist interpretations of that history, that everybody else can say that they could lump Abe in with and the government in with the extreme right in Japan. And I think that's a problem for Tokyo. But my, my sense has always been that he, even, even uh, somebody like him, uh, he has less at stake uh, if he has to turn and face his constituency at home and say, well, yeah, I, I, I blinked. Uh, he, he's, he's not, not going, going to blink. He's not going to blink. They, they, I, I really do think that in a way there'll be some solution worked out. The United States says it doesn't want to be a negotiator, but this is not a totally intractable thing. And when the temperature goes down, and you know, some credit to the Chinese, they did uh, issue a clarification two nights ago before Biden appeared, which was much less bellicose than the initial announcement on November the 23rd. And I suspect that Biden gave Xi Jinping and uh, pretty good, uh, I, I hesitate to say lecture, but was pretty forceful in encouraging him to try and solve this thing. So uh, I, for some reason, I don't think that this is going to be a major catastrophe. What do you think, Peter? I don't think it's going to be a major catastrophe, but I mean, unless, of course, there is a collision. Of unless course. that's you know, the end of the world. We wars. get Japanese jets and Chinese jets flying too close to each other in opposite directions at very high speeds, and something terrible happens. Um, but I think from, from, from the Japanese perspective, I think, frankly, Abe is uh, internationally in an awkward situation, but at home, he's probably quietly laughing to himself because this is a present to him on a silver plate mm -hmm. as he tries to push his, his new, his own national security agenda through. Uh, I think this will will help him a lot in the diet. Interesting. Um, let's talk a little bit about Biden's visit. He stopped in Japan. Uh, the, the remarks that he said uh, were probably not exactly what Abe wanted to hear. Um, I mean, he where he still affirmed commitment to to the the alliance and and, and whatnot. Uh, nor was it the kind of I suppose. Uh, uh, not exactly what Beijing wanted to hear. What was the real subtext of, of, of Biden's utterances, few as they were, on this topic in Japan? Well, as we mentioned earlier, the United States is a treaty ally, and the United States would not be too happy if it really did have to come to the aid of Japan in a conflict between China and Japan, if there was some collision over the islands, for example. So it looked to me as though Biden said, and he Biden actually talks this way. Look, buddy, uh, we understand you're in a jam here, but let's cool the temperatures. And uh, we're happy to help you cool the temperature, but would you mind helping us and just you know, cool, cooling, cooling it down? Uh, now, what exactly he advised on that, I don't know. Then ba uh, Biden came here, and he talked fairly sternly to the Chinese. And now he left two hours ago to go to South Korea. 
and I think that he's going to try and he's taking something from Abe. I think Abe would really like Mrs. Park, the president of South Korea, uh, to be more forthcoming in relations with Japan. So I think Biden, in a way, is sort of doing a bit of shuttle diplomacy here. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And, uh, and one of the things is to get Abe to calm down. Biden seems to have, you know, um, the, had had the China brief sort of inserted into his portfolio. Absolutely. Uh, um, when what was the uh, when did this actually come about? Was it at the time that Hillary stepped down? Oh, earlier. It stems from uh, uh, Biden coming here in was it 2011, I think. Yeah, a couple of years ago. And okay. uh, he was vice president. Xi Jinping was vice president. And uh, they traveled to Chengdu. They spent some time in Beijing. Mm-hmm. And uh, apparently, it seems evident, they hit it off. Um, uh, she is a more modern politician than his predecessors. Mm-hmm. Uh, Biden is a really down-home guy and doesn't mind saying what's on his mind. Sure. And somehow, I think this appealed to she and I think in contrast to the sort of cool atmospherics between Obama and she at the summit in California in June no matter how people like to spin it I don't think much was going on in the relationship there Biden has a better relationship with she so I think we'll be seeing more of him here okay what else was on his on his plate I know Peter you said you weren't watching his, his visit so carefully maybe I can stay with Jane then for just a second well, I mean, when he when he came initially, he wanted to concentrate on on the Trans-Pacific Trade Pact, that, right, uh, but not he, here, he not here in Japan. In Japan but, uh, and I don't know how much <laughs> how much time he had to uh, to talk about that. I mean, obviously, the this ADIZ crisis didn't take up all his time here. Um, perhaps Jane, you're a little bit more. Au fait I think with, he uh, probably <clears throat> took about fifteen to twenty percent of his time here, mm-hmm. and I think there was quite a bit of discussion on the outcomes of the third plenum. Uh, the economic relationship between uh, China and the United States, um, maybe particulars about the investment treaty. We really haven't heard the details of it, but I think in broad brushstroke, it was to uh, move economic details along and to encourage uh, Xi to you know, move as fast as he could on the uh, ideas that he's come forward on the plenum. One area that's of, of direct impact to the two of you in your profession is that he did raise... Uh, the issue of treatment of, of journalists. Anyone want to talk to that? I mean, I know that as a, as a leading light in the Foreign Correspondents Club of China, maybe you want, Peter? You want to... Yes, well, I was I was glad to see that he, he did raise the uh, the problems that um, the New York Times and Bloomberg are having at the moment. Um, there have been delays in the issues of their, uh, their press cards and visas, um, and the Chinese government hasn't given any explanation of this, but... Uh, Everybody knows what sort of stories the New York Times and uh, Bloomberg have written in the past. Um, I'm glad to see that uh, that Mr. Biden brought this up publicly. Uh, I hope he brought it up privately, um, because this is happening at a time when when Chinese press, Chinese state-controlled press, is blossoming all over the world. I mean, they're building a huge presence uh, around the world, and particularly in the United States. Um, and I think it's, uh, it's 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 particularly galling to see that that U.S. media um, having potential problems getting visas approved here, um, while uh, their Chinese counterparts flourish in the United States. Great. And then there's one more issue that um, uh, these are talking points that he he uh, sort of has reheated from a speech that he gave 
earlier this year in Pennsylvania uh, at the University of Pennsylvania at their graduation, uh, at the commencement. Uh, he talked about innovation, and I, I, I actually, it's, it's a little bit of a sore point with me. He uh, bangs on about, I mean, in, in, in what I think is a pretty hubristic fashion about how only in an atmosphere of, of total of freedom of expression can one actually innovate. He, he, he Kaiser, I remarks. agree with you. I think it is a little, sometimes it can be a little bit over the top. Yeah. I think the United States has you know, great, and I absolutely applaud it, and it's a, and it's a rock bed of the United States, uh, press freedom and innovation and freedom to criticize. But I think it's a little bit unbecoming to keep on breastfeeding about it. And so... Yeah, <laughs> what to say? <laughs> and it was it was odd because I th- he he said it at the visa line right where and, and this wasn't even uh, these weren't people who were emigrating to the U S these were people simply going there to visit right yeah he when sort of made a political America, speech yeah. to people who were going to pick up a visa to go and see Disneyland and the Empire State Building <laughs> I think Joe Biden makes political speeches whenever he opens his mouth so. yeah well once in a while politics come out I mean sometimes other things do. Uh, that's great. You know, I think we, we've sewn this up pretty nicely. Uh, let's move on now to the segment of the show where we make recommendations of, of fun things. Let's see. Do you guys have anything handy? Because I've, I've got a couple to make if you want. Jane, you want to start? Well, as we were talking before, I uh, was always very taken with John F. Kennedy um, and his idealism. And by the way, I have to say that I think the appointment of Caroline Kennedy to Tokyo as ambassador, I thought I was, at first I thought this is, I'm not sure this is going to work out, but now I think it's really quite a stroke of genius because I think she does represent the best of what American is best idealism. In America. Yeah. Um, so I was quite taken with the 50th anniversary. So I've been uh, reading um, a new book by compilation of, by Robert Dalek, who's a very famous presidential historian on JFK and his advisors. And then most appealing uh, is a book uh, edited by Michael Beschloss, who's also a presidential historian, of the interview that, series of interviews that Jacqueline Kennedy gave to Arthur Schlesinger a few months after her husband was assassinated. And these are sort of candid um, views that she gave him of how she saw her husband, how she saw uh, members of the administration. And she was quite perceptive. Well, that'd be interesting. I, I, I'd love to see what he has. She has to say about McNamara or anyone like uh, McNamara, I don't remember. But, for... but de Gaulle, she was quite scathing about, oh. even though she was such a francophile. And she loved Macmillan, you know, who was this sort of this old <laughs> grandfatherly <laughs> British prime minister. And she loved David Gore, who was this sort of very British, the British ambassador, and mm. thought she was just the... He was just the ant's pants. And then uh, she, she had some rather nasty things to say about others, but conveniently I've forgotten them. <laughs> Great. We'll have to read the book. Thanks very much. Um, Peter, what do you have for us? I've um, become very curious in the last uh, few days about Bitcoin, which is some, a phenomenon of which I was completely unaware uh-huh. uh, only a month or so ago. And so my recommendation is a, is, is a website. It's actually only one page uh, website. It's called Fiat Leak, F-I-A-T, Fiat as in fiat currencies like uh-huh. dollars and pounds and euros, Leak, L-E-A-K. And it is simply a map of the world and a list of currencies underneath, along the bottom. And you watch little bitcoins jump from the currency th- over the map of the world to the country where they're being traded. And if you want to see how dominant China is now, in Bitcoin trading and the Bitcoin ecosystem, there's one or two little Bitcoins popping up from the US dollar into America, and then every now and again, one goes to Moscow. From the bottom right-hand corner, there are great clots 
of bitcoins in a steady stream race going from the, the Chinese yuan up to Beijing. I it's would love to see where it's going right now because, I mean, today, I, I'm, today is Thursday, uh, the 5th of December, and uh, finally Beijing actually made an official pronouncement on Bitcoin. And uh, I, when I left um, to, to, to come to the studio today, I was, all, I was seeing it all over Twitter and, 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 and watching the, the value of Bitcoin plummeting quite quite uh, quite uh, abruptly we'll, yeah. we'll have to revisit this one right? absolutely i mean one of so the most extraordinary things about it is fiat, fiat leak f-i-a-t-l-e-a-k dot com. com okay we'll yeah. definitely check that out um i also have a, a couple of funny little website recommendations well one is a wikipedia page which is just anyone who has studied chinese or lives in china needs to look at this um it came up in the context of uh this this story about this uh foreigner on a, a motor scooter who uh, ran into a a, uh, a woman who uh, initially it looked like had sort of you know faked injury and lay wailing on the ground and clutching at this guy's coat to get him to pay. But um, he began uh, getting very very foul mouthed with her. I mean on, on videotape, you know, he calls her by, by some very very nasty words and makes some references to her family members that that are very inappropriate. Um, and it, it a bunch of us were talking about how uh, Mandarin learners. Uh, often they, they don't they don't know how to, to wield the knife or the, or the cudgel. They go immediately for the the, the, the big bore gun uh, in, in in an inappropriate circumstance, and it often leads to unnecessary escalation. They don't know how to escalate incrementally. So Wikipedia to the rescue. Uh, look up Mandarin Chinese profanity. That's a terrific page. I mean, it's got everything. Oh, not everything. Um, I think th- there are people who will, I hope, on hearing this, go and add to it and, and, and fill in. Um, and it would be really nice to see sort of a, a proper sort of escalation of, 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 of caliber and firepower uh, in this. Some great ones that I hadn't even heard before. I can swear <laughs> like Goodness me. Uh, so that's one recommendation I want to make. And the, another I want to make is um, a, a series of slate pieces um, in which the various American phenomena like Thanksgiving – are written about as though they were foreign correspondents writing these stories. I'm just going to read you a couple of um, one on Thanksgiving. (coughs) Dateline, Washington, D.C., United States. On Wednesday morning, this normally bustling capital city became a ghost town as most of its residents embarked on the long journey to their home villages for an annual (laughs) festival of family, food, and questionable historical facts. Experts say the day is vital for understanding American society, and economists are increasingly taking note of its impact on the world economy. The annual holiday, known as Thanksgiving, celebrates a mythologized moment of peace between America's early foreign settlers and its native groups, a day that by Americans' own admission preceded a near genocide of those groups. Despite its murky origins, the holiday remains a rare institution celebrated almost universally in this ethnically diverse society. During the holiday, more than 38.4 million Americans will make the long pilgrimage home, traveling an average of 214 miles over congested highways, often in inclement weather. The most more prosperous citizens will frequently opt for the nation's airways, suffering through a series of flight delays and missed airline connections thanks to the country's decaying transportation infrastructure and residual fears of foreign terrorist attacks. Uh, it's great. And there's a series of four of them. They, they, they do the shutdown. They, I mean, it's... It's, it's, I think, very refreshing to, 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 to listen to this. Um, and I, I know this is how, I mean, 
this is how we write about China. And this is, the, you, you hear this, right? The, the, the Chinese New Year holiday, the transportation. Yeah. It's it was great. It's, it's sort of really the United States check isn't that, perfect. Check that. It's very, very, very funny. Okay, great. Thanks, Jay. Thank you. Great. Good to have you on. Thanks, Peter. Let's have you on again. You're welcome. Soon. Well, love it. And, uh, and we will see you next week. Uh, Jeremy will be back with us next week, and, and we've got a, a really great show on that for you. So take care.